This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The government has cut TVNZ some slack by telling them to forget about making money for now, a move that's annoyed its commercial broadcasting rivals. But the quid pro quo was that it should use the money to ramp up local programming, which others struggle to provide. This week, TVNZ unveiled its plans for 2020, so we ask, what will we get on screen for all those millions? Also, as Facebook faces legal pushback for exploiting users' data, we look at local journalists' eye-opening tales of online intrusion into people's most private stuff, including the memorable headline, Facebook thinks I'm pregnant. That is one of, one of the more worrying ones, really, of your app spying on you, isn't it? But first, it's been impossible to avoid sad and sometimes sickening details in the news this week from two murder trials in which young women were the victims and reporting has at times clashed with what the courts and the law permit. Kia ora, good evening. The judge in the murder trial for British backpacker Grace Mullane has issued a strong warning to the jury. The highly anticipated trial began today at the High Court in Auckland. TVNZ's Jack Tame there getting TVNZ One News underway with day one of the trial of the man accused of the murder of Grace Mullane. Her death sparked a huge reaction last summer, even marches in the streets up and down the country. There was a frenzy on social media and consequently huge coverage in the news as well. And as TVNZ's reporter Paul Hobbs pointed out last Monday, all that was a big part of Justice Moore's warning to the jury. Cameras in court were in overdrive as the man accused of murdering Grace Mullane stepped into the dock. How do you plead, guilty or not guilty? The 27-year-old Auckland man, who we can't identify for legal reasons, told the court he didn't do it. Members of the jury has pleaded not guilty to this charge. The accused's name was bleeped out of TVNZ's report there because it was suppressed, along with other details about the accused which have been suppressed ever since he was first charged months ago. But that was not respected by people online in the past, as Justice Moore also told the jury. Social media has climbed into the debate, and almost all of that noise comes from people who know nothing about the facts of this case or the circumstances. Breaching a suppression order can run the risk of contempt of court, something our news media must and do take very seriously. But earlier this year, some media overseas covering the death of Grace Mullane did reveal the accused's identity. And the prospect of something similar happening again during this week's trial was the lead story on RNZ News last Monday morning. A media law professor says there's no guarantee international media will abide by name suppression laws on a high-profile murder case. The trial for the killing of British backpacker Grace Mullane begins in the High Court at Auckland today. Well, so far, overseas media haven't published any suppressed details during the current trial, so far as Media Watch knows. Now, coincidentally, the trial of another man accused of the murder of a young woman opened the same morning in Dunedin, and the judge's concerns about social media in that trial were also in RNZ's news on Monday morning. The judge overseeing the trial of a former Dunedin doctor accused of murdering a teenage girl has told any potential jurors who have commented on the case on social media to step aside. Jury selection is underway in the case of Venod Skanta, who's charged with murdering 16-year-old Amber Rose Rush in her Corstaphine home in Dunedin last February. Now, in this case, the identity of the accused is not suppressed any longer. His name, age and details of his employment as a doctor have all been aired. But when Vinod Skantha was granted name suppression earlier this year after he was first charged, well, this too was breached by the media, as News Hub's Dave Gooselink reported at the time. 
His lawyer argued that it was very early in proceedings, uh, JP granting the doctor interim name suppression. That's despite questions over whether the horse uh, has already bolted. The defendant's name has been widely published and spread, and along with at least one major New Zealand uh, news website. The online news story Dave Gooselink referred to there was hastily taken down by the publisher and in a reversal of the Grace Mullane situation, that story was then posted on overseas websites with the suppressed details and in one case the local reporter's byline still in it. Now clearly the eagerness of the news media, both here and overseas, to report as much as they can clashes with the courts when it comes to facts that the courts want to keep out of the public domain. And that conflict was thoroughly aired in the media earlier this year after the man arrested for the murder of Grace Mullane was granted interim name suppression. On News Talk ZB at the time, Larry Williams told his listeners the law is an ass. It will be the overseas media who will run endless stories that can't be reported here. And this is why that name suppression today was a nonsense, was a farce. There was no legitimate reason why this guy's name shouldn't be out there, none at all. Now, the Criminal Procedure Act lays out nine grounds for suppression, which include extreme hardship to the person charged with the offence or people connected with that person, and also if it would cast suspicion on another person, which may cause undue hardship to them or cause undue hardship to any victim of the offence. And under the Act, a court must take into account the views of a victim of an offence. And it doesn't say anything about the views of talkback hosts. At the time, TV3's Duncan Garner called the law a farce in four separate interviews in just one morning, prompting Otago University law professor Mark Hennigan to respond with this. I don't think any one of us would want to be tried by the media. We want to be tried by the, the proper processes of justice. And so we've, we've got to treat everyone like this, even, even in situations like this, which is very difficult for people to do. We've got to stand back and, and try and say we've got to be fair in the circumstances to, to all, all defendants. Now, by and large, media do comply with suppression orders, even when citizens on social media and overseas media don't. And this past week, most local mainstream media did not post stories about the Grace Mullane trial to Facebook for fear of sparking more prejudicial outrage in response, and that was a responsible and a proactive move. But when RNZ's Susie Ferguson had the nation's leading media law expert on Morning Report last Monday, she asked the University of Canterbury's Professor Ursula Chia this. Would there be any impact if the individual is named on the fairness of the case from a justice point of view? Well, there could be. And the obvious response from the accused counsel would be if they didn't feel they were getting fair trial to make an application to the judge about that. And and that's the risk. And that's why um, it's best if, if media don't do this, whether they're New Zealand media or overseas. We want the trial to run. We've got quite a good justice system and we need the process to run. It's going to be quite a long trial. And, and if the trial fell over, then the police and everybody would be back to square one. And mm. um, you, we'd have the situation where we'd have a crime without having been an appropriate process. Now that clearly would not be a good outcome for anyone and Professor Chia went on to point out the law on this is set to change. We've actually got a contempt bill um, in the process at the moment which will contain an offence for jurors if they do or are found to go off and do that sort of investigation so um, they are looking to tighten up um, that area in any event. 
Now there, Ursula Chia was referring to jurors who ignore their prohibition on researching their cases online and reading the media coverage. That will be an offence under the new Contempt of Court Act. But even after so much was said in the media earlier this year about the law being unfair and ineffective for the media in the online era, next to nothing has been reported about this change of law, even though it includes hefty penalties for the media for breaches of suppression. In 2017, the Law Commission first proposed prohibiting the media from publishing or reporting on an arrested person's previous convictions or any concurrent charges. It also proposed allowing the courts to make temporary suppression orders, which would prevent the media from publishing information that could pose a real risk of prejudice to an arrested person's fair trial. The Law Commission said that in the digital age, courts should also have the power to order stuff on the internet to be taken down, and that would include news reports. The Contempt of Court Bill, which passed through Parliament in August, makes it an offence to intentionally publish any information which could prejudice a fair trial. In the case of an individual, the penalties are imprisonment for a maximum of six months or a fine of up to $25,000. Or in the case of a corporate body, the fine could be up to $100,000. So is this a reasonable or even overdue response to the problem of breaches of suppression orders? Or should New Zealand media be worried about these new penalties? Massey University journalism tutor Fran Tyler was once a court reporter for the Dominion Post and she's been researching the development of suppression laws ever since they first emerged a century ago. We missed the boat. We missed the boat when the internet came to be a thing 20, 25, 30 years ago now. Catch up, And there is no solution. There is no easy solution. Unless there's an international agreement amongst all countries, um, there's no way that we can... successfully impose suppression orders. Yeah, so for example when Australia had uh, Cardinal Pell, uh, his name was suppressed within Australia but New Zealand media felt no compunction about naming him while the court action was going on over there. Exactly, and you could, if you're Australian and you wanted to find out what was going on, you'd simply pop onto uh, stuff or uh, NZME and see what what his name was. Um, Right now, Fran, journalists can of course still be held in contempt of court, but the new Contempt of Court Act Uh, What difference does it actually make that that now exists and there are specific new offences which will cover the media as well as other people who interact with the court? So, yes, the the new Act actually codifies things that that in the past were just case law. Journalists had to abide by rules that were developed in earlier cases and it was very difficult for you to to know exactly where where you were crossing a line because unless you knew about those cases. The new Act actually specifies um, at which points... Um, things happen and what things you can and can't say in in some cases. For example, currently under the the present rules, um, a journalist can't um, discuss anything about a case once an arrest is imminent. So as a journalist, how do you know when an arrest is imminent? Uh, You're guessing. And when is imminent? Is imminent subjective? The new Act actually puts that um, into law and it says that things become sub judice or unable to be discussed uh, at the point of arrest or charge, whichever is earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, that's better, but again, there is still a grey area because you need to be informed of when an arrest or a charge is laid. And as a journalist, police don't necessarily always tell you those things. Well, friend, for media, I guess quite a lot hinges on the question of what is considered to be have a real risk of prejudicing the arrested person's right to a fair trial, as the Act puts it. I mean, does the Act make it clear to media what those things might be? Yeah, actually the Act supplies some uh, examples of what could be considered prejudicial material. 
Um, you know, some most of them are things that we are already quite aware of, you know, including previous uh, convictions. Uh, but some of the things we quite routinely do at the moment without really thinking. Uh, one of those is we quite frequently you know, mention if a person has gang affiliations. You quite often hear a Mungle mob member has been charged with something or other. No longer able to do that after this uh, act comes into force. Um, one of the other things that we routinely do, and, and especially these days with you know, everyone carrying a video camera in their pocket in the form of a phone, is um, images or videos of a person after their arrest or at their point of arrest. Breaking news, man arrested for car chase along Wellington waterfront. And, so uh, it's a newsworthy event in It's public. a newsworthy event. Mm. People see it. They see it. And, and, and we have published, um, as media, pictures of people... Um, being arrested and shoved into police cars. So at that point, that's now considered... Now you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to do that in the future. Um, and, yeah, that, that's going to be a surprise to some people, I think. They're, they're quite used to doing that, and it's great copy. It's great great news. Great user-generated content, but could prejudice someone's right, right to a fair, fair trial. trial and... Especially if there's some uh, issue as to the identity of that person, and they need wit- witnesses to say, well, yes, that was the man that I saw or the woman that I saw driving at 120 miles an hour down uh, Willow Street. But the, the media usually rail against any kind of new law which um, could potentially penalise them or even you know, criminalise mm. their work. Um, so the, the Contempt Act includes penalties for publication that breach the rules of uh, six months in jail, up to mm. uh, $25,000 for individuals, um, I think $100,000 for you know a, a corporate body. I mean, interesting that that's barely been reported in the media, while they, you know, they've had a lot to say about what they feel about the, the unfairness of, um, of suppression and, and uh, the, the barrier that puts in front of their reporting. Have the media actually objected and submitted on this? Um, <clears throat> yeah, there were two submissions that were put in by um, to the bill, one by NZME and another by Bauer Media, but they were fairly uh, similar. They raised a number of points, um, you know, including you know, being informed about arrest and at what point that happens. Um, another of the, um, the issues that they raised was um, in relation to um, takedown orders. Um, the Act itself... The key thing was the intentional publication. So these defences that say um, if the distributor of the publication or the person has taken all reasonable care, uh, yep. could might have been unaware uh, that it contained information of a real risk of prejudicing uh, the right to a fair trial, Does, do those defences reduce the jeopardy for journalists? They very much do. Um, the, you do have protection if you're providing a fair and accurate report of a court case. However, that's currently law as well, so you are still protected if you if you say something that this defamatory within a court case you are protected from being prosecuted. And right at the start of the process of reforming these rules and the creation of the Contempt of Court Act, the Law Commission had said that uh, the courts ought to have um, the power in the online age to make sure things could be taken down. Yes. Now this is something I guess the media would want really good reasons to do before they start taking down material they've already published. Um, what does the, the new act have to say about that? They've actually codified that you cannot publish anyone's previous convictions. And it gives the court the opportunity to decide on its own to order an, a news organisations to take down uh, previous stories which include information about earlier convictions. It's yet to be determined how often that's going to happen. When name suppression first came in in 1920, 
it was yet to be determined <laughs> how often that was going to be used. And that was used a lot, so much that judges complained about people putting in applications for name suppression. We don't know what's going to happen with these takedown orders. Um, you know, imagine if uh, someone has a lot of previous convictions and they've been reported. You've got a lot of stories you've got to take down. And then there's an argument that uh, once the suppression is lifted on this, after the case is over, they won't get round to putting them back up again. And that information then gets lost to history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gone. No longer searchable. Well, right now we've got two very high-profile murder cases running. Um, in Auckland, there's... Um, the case of the murder of Grace Mullane, mm-hmm. um, where the name of the accused is suppressed in Dunedin. Uh, Amber Rose Rush, the murder case, the murder trial there, uh, the name of the accused is not. Um, in your mind, looking at the media coverage, does it make a big difference to the coverage or what the reader gets? Well, in terms of the coverage, it probably isn't that different. But the, the point of that is that you know the public have a right to know who has offended against our our common laws, our rules, our our moral codes. And in one case we can't know because the judge has ordered a suppression order and in the other case we do know. Um, uh, And it's frustrating for the media. It is. I've been there. I've sat there and gone, this is just so unfair. You you know that the public has a right to know this. And in some cases there's actually a very good reason why a name should be out there. Uh, In one case I, I covered, there was a person in a reasonably high profile position who was also working with vulnerable children in a, um, a childcare centre uh, who was facing charges of child sexual abuse. Uh, yet the judge suppressed that person's name until trial. So that person was allowed to continue to work in the childcare industry because their em- employers could not be informed. But the courts do have very good reasons for suppressing names. Um, in some cases, you know, it's to protect the, vic- the victims themselves. You know, they there may be other cases that may be prejudiced by having this this person's name um, published. We don't know. There are times where the courts make those decisions for very good reasons. The names will come out at some point, and I guess we just have to be patient and trust that the, the judge has made this decision for a very good reason. I've talked to some court reporters this week, um, mm. but of course, and none of them are keen to talk about it right now, which I understand. Of course, we've got these trials going on in the news at the moment. But one thing, uh, we've had a lot of people getting in touch. The level of coverage mm. is really uh, striking a chord with some people. Every detail, particularly in the case of the Grace Mullane trial, uh, is being reported. Uh, in some cases, people are getting notifications on their phones several times a day. Uh, headlines like, uh, what the accused Googled the night after Grace's death, kind of morselised, if you like, rather than waiting to the end of the day and publishing an account of the trial with the trial continues mm, at the bottom, yeah. which would have been uh, the traditional way of doing it. Um, does it feel to you, like, as a former court reporter, like the coverage is um, kind of incessant and that that might actually be a turn-off for some people out there? Oh, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Um, Things like the internet and, and online media make that information available to us all the time, you know, especially when we're getting alerts and, and things like that. That can, can become quite overwhelming. If that is something that's bothering you, turn, mm. turn those alerts off. You don't need them. Uh, as, as a for instance, I say Donna Chisholm, who's a very experienced mm. senior journalist, uh, uh, she went on Twitter and said, I can't imagine how Grace's parents are surviving this. I've never prayed in my life, but I'm praying now to whatever power might bring them hope, strength and support. You know, so it's clearly affected her. Um, and then Linda Clark, former journalist, now a lawyer, mm. replied to 
uh, Donna Chisholm, saying, look, I think one small thing that might help is if the media dialed back a bit, there's a gruesome level of voyeurism in how much detail is being reported. Uh, do you feel, as a former court reporter, that perhaps for the good of the public and maybe even the reputation of the media outlets, that publishing less often... Do you think there is a case for, as Linda puts it, the media dialing it back a bit? The media has been publishing for 150 years in New Zealand. Gruesome details of all sorts of terrible crimes, murders, all bets were off, everything was published. Um, We actually have now, I believe, dialed that back slightly already in terms of that we won't publish very, very gruesome details in most cases. So people assume the media are out to print as much and publish as much as they can, but in, in a lot of cases, actually, they will be dialing it back. Yeah, we, 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 ke- we are careful about how we say things. We don't, we don't repeat post-mortem evidence uh, word for word because it's too gruesome. Um, does, it, does it feel to you that in the case of Grace Mullane specifically, where there has been a huge volume of material, that it's been over the top or inappropriate? Yeah, you have sensational cases. There are always sensational cases. And the, the rules seem to fly out the window for some reason in those cases. Um, the Lundy case, uh, the Scott Watson case, um, the Barlow case. I think the, the boundaries are pushed a little bit further in, in the sense of what's acceptable for people. Does the media create the sensation? Or do the public create the sensation for the media to feed on by its response. Of course, now they know straight away because what they push out to people's phones, they know if people are engaging exactly. with it or not and will give them more if they do, less if they don't. Yeah, you can see who's, who's reading what. And, well, not necessarily who's reading what, but you can see how, how much a story is being read with their, their own analytical software. What we've been doing in recent years, and I think it started with the uh, Scott Guy case, uh, was... You know, a constant stream of updates. So the the website was being updated while the trial was while underway. the trial was proceeding. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be good to see how how the media move forward from this. Uh, is it going to give more prolific coverage? Another thing people reacted really badly to is though the level of detail just in these early days of the trial about Grace Mullane's conduct and behaviour. So, forensic analysis of what she was doing is this fair? Her conduct is under the microscope when she's a victim. Um, But would you say, look, this is all evidence. It's a court case. It's got to be reported fully. It's it's difficult, but yeah, it's it's got to be there. Yeah, I I have to say I agree with you there. It's it is evidence in court, and um, yeah, it's open to be reported. Yeah, again, a judge is able to suppress information, evidence if he wants to, or she wants to, they want to. Um, the media also has the opportunity to object to that and appeal that and say we, we don't think that's right. But, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's public information and it's, it's out there and it can be reported, and it is being reported. That was Fran Tyler, former court reporter for the Dominion Post and now her journalism teacher at Massey University. There she studied name suppression and contempt of court and how suppression orders have been employed by the courts over the past 100 years. And in the online version of the story, you can hear more of what Fran Tyler had to say about that and also about the intense media coverage so far of those two murder trials which have been so prominent in our news this past week. You'll find that on the Media Watch section of the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, or the RNZ app, or you can also hear it on the Media Watch podcast feed.
As we've mentioned on Media Watch before, the government is, to quote the current Minister of Broadcasting, Chris Farfoy, having a good look at public broadcasting to make sure it's fit not just for purpose now, but for the next 25 to 30 years. And outfits with an interest in what he decides are ramping up their efforts to be heard. Last Wednesday, the government broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air released new research which harked back 30 years, all about what we wanted from the media back then and what we want now. It also issued a discussion document which warned... New Zealand media will only survive the onslaught of global media giants by acting collectively to create the content audiences want and make it easier for them to find and enjoy it. Half of those surveyed in the poll New Zealand On Air Commission said they didn't actually watch New Zealand content outside of the news and sport, but with changes, more New Zealanders would. And by far, the change most people wanted was ad-free viewing. On Wednesday, the pro-public broadcasting lobby group Better Public Media released more opinion polling results from the same company, coincidentally, that did New Zealand On Air survey, Research New Zealand. Almost two-thirds of 1,000 respondents in this one supported ad-free weekends on TVNZ1 and 6 out of 10 supported making the state-owned channel completely non-commercial. Only 1 out of 10 didn't like that idea. A majority of those polled was also keen on taxing big tech companies like Facebook and Google to support New Zealand programmes and media. And then there was expanding RNZ to include ad-free TV or amalgamating TVNZ, RNZ and Māori Television into one large ad-free broadcaster and media outlet. Bailing out struggling commercial media companies was not an option canvassed in this poll, but those feeling the financial strain are also sending out messages right now with this government media policy review in mind. This week, the country's biggest news publisher, Stuff, launched a new campaign highlighting the media's role in public life. It's called Because Journalism, and this never actually mentions the minister's review explicitly, but broadcasting company MediaWorks certainly has. It's directly urged the minister to intervene to ensure its survival in recent weeks. And earlier this month, the Herald on Sunday took on its message. Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy doesn't want to talk about MediaWorks as it's a private company. But in the meantime, the government could do something about the abject unfairness of the situation. The playing field is a world-turfed one for TVNZ1, being owned and operated by the state-owned broadcaster and underwritten with taxes from you and us. This week, the National Business Review, in a gloomy edition of its anonymous weekly column, Shoeshine, also looked at the parlous state of our media companies, describing them this way. The megatrend of traditional media losing eyeballs and advertising seems to be so well entrenched, it's hard to see any of them surviving unsubsidised in their current form for much longer. And the NBR also had the state-owned TV broadcaster in its sights. TVNZ, a poster child for government business incompetence, was the headline. How so? Well, because, said Shoeshine, TVNZ has told the government it won't be returning dividends to the Crown in the foreseeable future and it could expect a $17 million loss next year. Back in August, I asked TVNZ's chief executive, Kevin Kenrick, what do we get in return for the company being excused its obligation to make the government some money? Because they've let you off the hook of having to run a tight enough ship to return them some money that it's going back into the business, what, what will we see? Um, what you'll see is a significant increase in investment in local content. So the mix between local and international will shift markedly towards local. You will continue to see investment in building an online future and making that content available across more devices. Um, 
And what you'll also see is a greater adoption of data to, to actually understand what individual viewers want and, so and, and, and to enable advertisers to have more targeted relevant ads. Not sure that targeted digital ads was a dividend that taxpayers would really have wanted at the top of their list from TVNZ, but the commitment there was to invest a substantial sum in more local programmes, and shortly after, Kevin Kenrick put a number on that when pressed by Stuff. He said an additional $20 million was planned for local content, including online news, and he said this was a three-year plan. The total investment in new local content could be in the order of $60 million. Well, earlier this week, TVNZ unveiled its annual showcase of programmes for the coming year to its most important customers, the advertisers. And most of the media focus on that was on the big box office primetime shows, which will pull in the bulk of the company's advertising revenue. But what extra local programming is in the pipeline with the promised $20 million next year? And after that, this week I asked TVNZ's head of content, Kate Slater. We have got a wide range. We've got event drama with Black Hands. Uh, that is bringing to life, of course, the podcast of the same name. Uh, and it is a really different look at being inside that Bain family. Um, we have got One Lane Bridge uh, in the event drama space as well, which fuses Māori mysticism with kind of event drama. And we have um, event reality with, you know, The Bachelorette New Zealand um, coming new to our screens next year as well as we're bringing back Celebrity Treasure Island. We've got local comedy with Taskmaster New Zealand um, being one of the exciting new titles we're bringing in that space. Amazing landmark factual um, origins, which is a terrific series hosted by Scotty Morrison, which is one of my absolute picks for next year. I mean, some of the programmes that are mentioned here, like um, the dramas One Lane Bridge, um, Black Hands, Taskmaster, they're already funded, aren't they, by New Zealand On Air? They're part-funded. We still invest in those shows ourselves. So they are still more expensive for us than buying international programming. Um, But there's a lot that we are um, commercially funding ourselves as well. You know, there is a number of of shows that we are looking to bring in to audiences uh, which aren't New Zealand On Air funded. But, of course, New Zealand On Air funding is an important part of the landscape in New Zealand. In in the press information, Kate, it it refers to investing exponentially. Um, So when Kevin Kenrick talked about 17 and $20 million a year, will all that go into local content that we wouldn't otherwise have seen on TVNZ? Yeah, so there's a variety of projects earmarked for that investment. Um, local content's definitely one of them. Sport um, is a big part of um, our local content strategy as well. We're looking at what events we can bring to TVNZ that are going to drive mass audiences. Um, as we saw with Rugby World Cup, sport unites the nation. Uh, we had 25% of New Zealand New Zealanders age 5 plus tuning in to watch that New Zealand semi-final. And overall that tournament reached almost 3 million New Zealanders. So we're looking at at events and content like that that can bring uh, mass audiences to our platforms. Okay, we'll talk about sport in a minute, but one interesting thing um, is news. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, on Wednesday, New Zealand On Air uh, released a big report, and the current audience that was surveyed there said they really want uh, independent and quality news. Um, you've said, look, the news, uh, the need to be informed is fundamental uh, in, in, your, um, in your content strategy and, and viewers turn to TVNZ to see a story as it unfolds. But the release also it lists the programmes that are already on, One News, Takarere, um, Fair Go, Sunday, Q&A, all those programmes we're familiar with. There's nothing actually new um, with this new investment? 
those new stalwarts are the staple of our of our um, schedule. Uh, we continue to deliver them because they continue to rate. We, of course, evolve those shows to to move with our audience, so they're not static. Uh, we're always looking at, is there something new we can do in that space, but we've got nothing to announce uh, at this stage. Well, that'll disappoint people, though, wouldn't it, if they're thinking of uh, you know a $20 million investment that, that's possibly not just for one year, it's for about three. They'd be looking to you for some sort of new, new investment or new program in news? Well, we're always looking at investing in those shows. So One News at Six, you will have seen on screen the investment into that show recently um, with the AR graphics that we're bringing, um, the amazing studio that we've, we've got there, uh, what we're doing in terms of reporting in the field and our, and our team of um, video journalists around the country. So we continue to invest in those news products. Well, New Zealand On Air's um, big report also had a, a kind of a startling headline finding, which was that half of people don't actually watch uh, or say they don't watch New Zealand programming. That, that doesn't actually include news and sport. And the conclusion New Zealand on air came to when asking them questions was that they would if there were changes to them. And the biggest change that by far the most number of people picked out was ad-free. Um, and there was further research from the Better Public Media Group. Another survey came coming out coincidentally the same day saying two-thirds of people would favour uh, a non-commercial TVNZ channel. Has this ever been discussed as an option because if you've got more investment because the government's allowed you to plough it back into the business, any discussion of the possibility of, of ad-free content via TVNZ? People are always going to want content ad-free, um, but it's how do you afford to make that content ad-free. At the moment, we are a commercially funded business, um, and so our advertising means that we can invest into our content. So at the moment, that's not an option for us. Yeah, so it's um, something you would effectively have to be directed to do by your shareholder, the government, I suppose. That's correct. Yeah, we work to to our um, our mandate because we know, you know, the government's media policy is is being reformulated. Something to be announced by the end of the year. So you've had any discussions about the possibility of having to perhaps offering a, an ad free channel or, or content in some form? Um, look, I'm sure discussions are ongoing. I've personally not been looking at that myself. Okay. Now, you mentioned sport, um, which is an area that TVNZ hasn't been big in in recent years, but uh, lately you've, you've come right back into it, um, particularly in tie-ups with outfits like Spark, for example, with the Rugby World Cup. Uh, so does this mean you, you're likely to make big bids in the next couple of years uh, in, in sports rights? Yeah, look, we're focused on television that people need to watch live. You know, in a time of fragmenting audiences, we need to, those big television events to, to bring our viewers and unite them. So, yes, we are actively looking at what we do in the sports space. Um, you know, we recently announced our partnership with New Zealand Cricket to bring selected international and local T20 matches to our screens. Uh, we have got the Paralympics. Um, so that's going to be big. And, of course, um, there's going to be nothing bigger than the America's Cup in 2021. Yeah, so sports rights are getting more and more expensive. Um, there will be events that make sense for us to do by ourselves, but then there will be others that we need to partner on, um, such as Rugby World Cup, where we partner with Spark. That was Kate Slater, TVNZ's Head of Content, and you can hear more of what she had to say in the online version of this story. We'll also find links to New Zealand on Air's research into what New Zealanders expect from their media in 2019, and that survey from 30 years ago carried out when the government's broadcasting funding agency was just getting started. And you can also find there a link to the survey of 1,000 New Zealanders by the pressure group Better Public Media, showing strong support for ad-free TV and other services.
And finally on Media Watch this weekend, Facebook's dominance of social media and digital advertising around the world has grown to the point where antitrust legislation in the US is looking more likely. And one thing we need journalists for these days is keeping an eye on just how companies are harvesting this digital data from all of us, usually without us even knowing. Lately, three journalists in the media here have produced eye-opening accounts of the consequences. In the cover story of last month's North and South magazine, Joanna Wayne produced a gripping account of families torn apart by unexpected revelations from DNA testing carried out by companies and genealogy websites which operate online and advertise heavily in the media. It included this quote from University of California law professor Elizabeth Joe. First rule of data. Once you hand it over, you lose control of it. You have no idea how the terms of service will change for your recreational DNA. And that applies to more than just DNA profiles. This week, the spin-off's Madeline Chapman tried to find out just how much of her personal info is out there to be harvested by others. She paid $99 to find out what the online service DateCheck would find out about her. DateCheck is marketed as a tool for women to take the angst out of online dating. But, as Madeline noted, the service might not be limited to those with good intentions. My colleague provided only my name and email and in return received my home and my work addresses. Replace my colleague with someone sinister and the distribution of such information feels not just unnecessary but unsafe. And apart from a rather soft interview with the founder of DateCheck on the AM show recently, this is the only reporting running the rule over this online service which MediaWatch has seen so far. And this week, a New Zealand journalist based in the UK, Talia Shadwell, discovered that some deeply private digital data of hers had been commercially harvested without her knowledge when she shared this on Twitter. I don't have children, but suddenly and out of nowhere, sponsored ads for baby clothing, children's books and pregnancy health were cluttering my Facebook news feeds. Now at first, Talia figured that this might be because she had liked Facebook posts by friends who did have kids, or perhaps she thought it was just because she'd recently turned 30 years old. It made sense that my social algorithms might start trolling me like an overbearing relative asking when I'm going to get married. But it turned out it wasn't Facebook's over-eager algorithm jumping to the wrong conclusion. Like many women I know, I use a period tracker app. And I hadn't logged last month's cycle and flashed a warning that I was very late. The app likely concluded I was pregnant and began communicating the information to third-party apps and algorithms. And that's what triggered the unwanted and ultimately futile flood of Facebook ads for baby stuff. And Talia has learned she's not alone. The use of data from period-tracking apps has been investigated by The Guardian and in a podcast called Someone Somewhere, which is all about fertility. Well, as I've said many times before on this podcast, we are not algorithms. This issue I see as a huge problem, and probably one of the worst parts of doing this work is correcting misinformation related to the digitization and commercialization of menstrual biodata. Talia Shadwell wrote about her discovery for her own paper in the UK, The Mirror, and her story was written up by her former employers here, Stuff, this week as well, with the memorable headline, Facebook thought I was pregnant. And when Talia went live on BBC Radio to talk about this, another, even more memorable headline was mooted. Talia, hello, how are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm well and not pregnant, <laughs> presumably. Uh, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to announce that I'm not to the whole world, apparently. <laughs> oh, what was your uh, co-worker at the Mirror's idea for a headline? 
It was I brilliant. I think it was Mark Zuckerberg, stay out of my uterus. That's it. It's brilliant. It's really good. You should have gone with that. Now, sharing such a personal story on national radio so that others would know how technology is trading our deeply personal stuff was a bold move, as BBC host Sarah Brett acknowledged. Uh, thanks very much. Lovely talking to you, Talia. Thank you. You too. Fascinating, thanks, if slightly terrifying. Talia Shadwell, Grania, that is oof, one, of, one of the more worrying ones, really, of your app spying on you, isn't it? And when it was all over, on Twitter, Talia Shadwell posted this wary final thought. I'm aware that by publicly tweeting the words baby, pregnancy and fertility in quick succession, I've probably triggered an excitable algorithm tripwire that's going to send me endless pictures of women smiling with nappies until I die. Well, we wouldn't bet against that, but if the algorithm has been crawling her tweets and the news stories about her thoroughly, it might just get wise enough to know that it got things completely wrong. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week, though we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.